I love the show Scrubs. It was on years ago. As often happens with great shows, sometimes they can't leave good enough alone, and so they tried to breathe some new life into it, and it didn't work out very well. They were pretty fearless in trying to break new ground and try new things in a 30-minute situational comedy about residents and interns and attendings in a hospital. One particular episode was fantastic because the whole episode centered around a woman who had a brain injury, and so she was hearing everything through the lens of a musical. And so the whole episode was interspersed with musical numbers from her listening perspective. Now, that resonated to me because I often find myself as one who is hearing the words, the world through the, uh, the lens of a musical. That's also because songs get stuck in my head. And I like Les Mis. Really, if we're getting down to it, this is all a grand lead up to let me quote a lyric from Les Miserables. Because some people, when they need a quick sermon illustration, go to C.S. Lewis and others go to musicals. <laughs> Do you hear the people sing, singing the songs of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again when the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drum. There is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. Now, you know the premise, right? The premise of Les Mis is all about um, a people who are living in the midst of oppression. The song asked the question, do you see people? Centering even around the interplay of Jean Valjean and Javert. Javert did what was right in the eyes of the law. But the eyes of the law can only see so far. Javert answered the question, Should, could I do this? Yes, I could. It's well within my rights as a constable of the law. It was the question of should I? that remained to be seen and ended up being Javert's undoing. God, through his word this morning, invites us as a people of God to hear, to see. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, it's an uncomfortable topic. None of us want to really talk about this, and Micah acknowledges that. So let's wade in. Let's go into the hard places because that's what God wants to do, right? He wants to mess with us. Not to break us or to destroy us, but to remake us in Jesus' image. So Micah chapter 2 is where we find ourselves. We'll read the whole chapter. Stand, if you would, as we hear God's word. Micah pulls no punches and speaking as God's prophet says this, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They cover fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. 
In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lie, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes by on before them, the Lord at their head, beloved. The grass withers, the flower fades. Our desire is that we would see Jesus in him. So here's what I want to cover today. I want to contend with this, uh, with this idea that oppression, oppression is real. Here's the second thing I want to do. I want to talk about the fact that it makes us react in a certain way, and then where I want to finish up is with this notion that God is ultimately going to do something about oppression. Let's start with this. Oppression is real. Listen to what verses 1 and 2 says again. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it. And seize them in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. So, every time my boys first wake up in the morning, we get some variant of this question. Where are my glasses? Now, I have to tell you right away that that comes from my side of the gene pool. I apologize to my boys both now and always because I was three when I got my per first set of glasses. It's a ride an hour thing. They can't see without them. So part of what we need to do in order to understand this chapter of Micah is to understand what oppression is and know where to look in order to find it. 
Now, now Micah gives us several clues as he works us along. As we just heard in verses 1 and 2, there's a particular type of oppression that Micah envisions. Now, let me ask you this. When you think of oppression, what is it that goes through your mind in terms of the ones who would perpetrate it, in terms of the ones who would do it? What is it exactly that goes through your mind? Do you think of um, those with malevolent intent who craft sinister plans and then subjugate the poor and the marginalized out of spite, who perhaps have cartoonish mustaches and twirl them and go hee-hee-hee in a mean sort of way? Now, it's true, by the way. There are some people out there in the world, I don't know if they have the cartoonish mustache or not, but they do legitimately um, think of ways that they can inflict great harm for their own gain, okay? That is, that is a true category, okay? The problem is that's not necessarily where Micah is thinking. Now, If it was just that first category, as best I know, and I admit I don't know all of you, but as best I know, none of you have a secret layer that you go to in order to plot evil deeds. If you do, we'll find it. That's not really what I'm thinking of. What I'm thinking of is actually another type of people. There's another type of oppression, not the kind that Micah first talked about, the ones that um, people do wickedness, they commit sins, sins of commission, act on their plans. And by the way, for those people, we join in what Micah is saying, right? We join in saying, woe to those who devise wickedness, the people that calculate wickedness and do this in their minds even as they sleep, woe to them. There's the second type of people that Micah is talking about here. And this is acts that are implied as evil acts rather than explicit evil acts. Look again at what Micah says in verse 2. They covet fields and seize them. What does he mean by that? So you have to flip back in your head and recognize that in Micah's day and age, it's pre-industrial, right? So what is the only source of uh, industry and income? It's agrarian, right? It's all based on land or livestock or anything else. So someone's land, a person's field, was very specific in the function that it held in the structure of society. That field was the means of how one made a living and a life. Not only that, it followed the family throughout generations. And so if one was to lose their land, they would truly be destitute. The land was the means of opportunity. If you had abundant fields, you have abundant opportunity in front of you. If you don't, you don't. So think about it. If someone's field was seized, even if it wasn't out of malice or ill intent, but rather through means that are perfectly legal, the person who lost their field would be crippled. It's perfectly legal. If someone defaulted on a debt, if there was a reason that you could jump in there, it was perfectly legal. 
it's hard to make that translate over into our day, right? We don't necessarily have a lot of reports of field theft or repossession going on. But um, look, at, uh, look at verse 9. We can probably more readily identify with what happens in verse 9. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. So like in the days of Micah, the women and children of the poor in our day tend to suffer the most disadvantage. Now, walk with me for just a minute, right? What I'm asking you to do is to hear the songs of the people, right? To hear them. I'm not asking you to diagnose why they're poor. I'm not asking you to say whose fault it is, who should have worked harder, who should have done this or that or anything else. I'm just asking at this point, do you see that they are poor? Do you see that the stories, the circumstances, the situations are all complicated? There is no one-size-fits-all solution, nor is there a simple fix. I'm not asking you to study their circumstances. I'm asking, do you see them? What I'm also asking you to do is to consider for just a moment that there are systems all around us that exist that allow oppression in the forms that the Bible talks about to exist. And that existence doesn't mean that we have done anything wrong by the world's standards. Now, keep hanging with me because we've got to do a little bit of work here. Okay. Being poor, according to the Bible, and certainly according to modern life, brings with it powerlessness. This is one of the reasons why God is so adamant for standing up for the poor. It would seem that even for the poor, what little they have, whether it is possessions or dignity, gets stripped from them. Consider verse 8. Look at verse 8. But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. So now, look at verse 10 in its context. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. In the dynamic of the society that Mike is speaking into, the oppressed, the poor, the marginalized, this is no place for the, of rest for them. This land right now is no place of refuge for them. There was a recent essay some years ago um, by a woman named Linda Torado who wrestled for decades with poverty. This essay went viral, as some, some things like this do, and I want to read an excerpt of it for you. She describes her life as a wife and mom battling poverty. She says, a rest is a luxury for the rich. I get up at six, go to school, then work. Then I get the kids and pick up my husband. Then I have half an hour to change and go to job number two. I get home from that job around 12.30 a.m. Then I have the rest of my classes and work to tend to. I'm generally in bed by three. I never get a day off from work unless I'm fairly sick, but that's not the worst part. Nobody gives enough thought to depression. You have to understand that we, uh, that we know, we the poor know that we never, we will never not feel tired. We'll never feel hopeful. We will never get a vacation ever. 
We don't apply for certain jobs because we know we can't afford to look nice enough to hold them. I would make a super legal secretary, but I've been turned down more than once because I don't fit the image of a firm. I'm not beautiful. I have missing teeth and skin that looks like it will when you live on B12 vitamin supplements, coffee, and no sleep. Beauty is a thing you get when you can afford it. And that's how you get the job you need in order to be beautiful. How do you feel when you hear that excerpt from her article? Did it resonate with you? Did you find it a little bit difficult to connect to? One of the things that the Stephen ministers and I talked a lot about over our training is this concept of empathy. Empathy is a powerful concept. It is the ability to connect with someone's pain and struggle and take it on yourself as if it was your own without losing the distinction of the as if. One of the reasons that it's hard to empathize with uh, Linda's struggle at least for some of us, is because the advantages that we have, we have enjoyed legally and fairly, 100% legitimately. Consider the acquisitions that Micah is talking about here in Micah chapter 2. They were also obtained legally. But the fact that they were obtained legally does not mean that they were not still perpetrating some level of oppression. Because in the ancient Near East, as I mentioned a moment ago, it was perfectly legal to take someone's field if there was a debt or a default on a loan. So verse 1, when the morning dawns, people perform it legally. Men and women could be repo agents. They could repossess, and it was completely within the bounds and the limits of the law. But what Micah does and what God does is it still calls this oppression. Now, there's two things that this text is not saying. I want you to make sure you hear me when I say this. First of all, this text is not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with economic gain. And it is not insinuating that you ought to feel guilty because of your gain and advantages. Okay? Everybody with me so far? Nod. Okay. So what is the text asking us to do? What is the text demanding of us that we do? It is demanding first and foremost that we hear and that we see with God's eyes. To acknowledge, to not insulate ourselves and self-justify and say, no, 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 no. I am not an oppressive person. I'm a person of meager means. Don't do that. Don't insulate yourself. Oppression takes on many forms. It can be malicious and malevolent. It can also be innocuous and nearly invisible. Just because you didn't think you were being oppressive doesn't mean that you weren't. Micah was writing to those who were keeping the law and obeying what and doing what they could do within the, within the bounds of the law. So I once heard 
an oncologist who was asked this question. They said, why is it that you don't get sick and tired of talking about cancer? It's ugly. He said, you're right. Keep talking about it because as long as cancer's around, I have to keep talking about it. I'll keep talking about it and keep talking about it and keep talking about it. Are we willing to wade in and have conversations that Because all of us, to some degree or another, want to jump to, and they all lived happily ever after. The end. Right? Of course we do. We all want to go there. But God won't let us just yet. Restoration sometimes comes through rebuke. So hang with me. Second point. I want to think about how oppression might make us feel. As we have these discussions, as we wade into these areas, I want to offer a few clarifications, right? Because some of you right now, okay, so when I was learning how to drive, we had a 1973 Volkswagen Beetle. Not much of it worked. Um, There was a very definitive part. Uh, It was the passenger seat. It was right here um, where the emergency brake could get grabbed by a nervous parent if it needed to. But instead, there were fingernail indentations and a worn spot right there where a hand gripped the seat. I'm sure that's because my sister also learned how to drive in that vehicle, and none of it was due to me. Just trying to get you to relax your grip on the bottom of your chair for a second. Here's the first thing I want to make sure that we have this on the recording, that I've said it in front of all of you. No one is advocating for a change in what some might call the mission of the church. Social justice. I moved back in case there was a trap door there. I don't think there is. So I think it needs to be said where I and our leadership fall around these issues. The mission of the church, the institution of the church of Jesus Christ is to rightly preach the word of God, rightly administer the sacraments, and rightly practice church discipline under the oversight of godly godly elders who possess the authority of the keys of the kingdom. Now, there is much talk these days about the purpose of the church being one to make the world a better place. This is a disastrous purpose of the church. It's why we spent so much time reminding our Stephen ministers that they are not the caregivers, they're the caregivers. They join God in what God's doing, but they don't confuse what their role is. So the idea that the church simply exists to make the world a better place has gained some traction again in recent days, but it is not new. The idea about the church making the world a better place was, quote-unquote, born in the late 19th and early 20th century. It was articulated most cogently by a Baptist theologian and activist named Walter Rosenbusch in his book, A Theology for the Social Gospel. In it, he said, the new thing in the social gospel is the clearness and insistence with which it sets forth the necessity and the possibility of redeeming the historical life of humanity from the social wrongs which now pervade it. Later in his book, he said this, 
Since the kingdom is the supreme end of God, it must be the purpose for which the church exists. The institutions of the church, its activities, its worship, and theology must be, in the long run, tested by its effectiveness in, listen for it, creating the kingdom of God. So, Rosenbush believed that the kingdom of God and a social gospel was the concept that could invigorate a dead church. If the kingdom had stood as the purpose for which the church exists, the church could not have fallen into such corruption and sloth. Now, on the one hand, this conception elevates the church. Within the field it has chosen to cultivate, the local church under good leadership is really a power of salvation, Rosenbush said. But lest the church take itself too seriously, listen to what else he said. By the way, I'm not a fan of him, just so everyone's clear. He noted, the kingdom of God is not confined within the limits of the church and its activities. It embraces the whole of human life. It is the Christian transfiguration of the social order. The church is one social institution alongside of the family, the industrial organization of society and the state. In other words, the purpose of the church, like all other social institutions, is to make the world a better place. Or to put it another way, the church exists for the sake of the world. Rosenbush's theology, by the way, and entire optimistic liberal project was seemingly discredited by the disasters called World War I and World War II and the incisive and bold critiques of neo-Orthodox theologians. Why did I give you all of that? Here's why. Because misuse of an idea does not negate proper use. I'm not posing any of these things to you because I think we need a new mission. We don't need a new mission. Our mission is the gospel of Christ Jesus and him crucified. What we do need to wade into, however, is a conversation around ethics. Ethics is well within the right of the church to speak to. Ethics is well within the purview of the right preaching of the word of God. It is ethics that order how our understanding of right and wrong, good and bad, how we as Christians live in the world, but not of the world. Armed with biblical knowledge that we, that we have, we must be able to wade in and answer the questions, not just can we, but should we? I'm going to give you an illustration. I told you we were in a little bit of the weeds. We're going to get out of the weeds in just a second. Okay. How many of you know what a 401k is? How many of you wish you spent more time on 401ks and less time on the Pythagorean theorem? Daniel's very mad at me right now because I assaulted a mathematical concept. I will pay for that later. Okay, how many of your uh, employers uh, make some sort of contribution or allow you to make contributions to your 401k? Anybody? Okay, how many of you know where your funds are going to? Okay, how many of you know all of the various companies that are involved in all of the mutual funds and other assets that you invest in? 
I'm getting a little bit more, a little bit less enthusiasm on the raising of hands. Okay? How many of you would be comfortable having your retirement assets, in other words, what you're making money from, be at the profits of companies that provide morning after pills or abortions? But you realize that it's possible that by the way that your funds are being invested in your 401k, you are in effect providing capital for people that would do evil. And then, wait for it, you're profiting from it. Now, I'm not saying this to make you feel bad. I'm saying this to get into the discussion, not just... Are, is it legal for you to invest in any mutual fund or asset account that you want to? Are you breaking any laws? No. Should you, however, be using your funds to go towards people that would perpetrate great evil? Well, see, that now we're in the conversation of ethics, right? It's not a question of can I, it's a question of should I? Ethics matter. Right and wrong matters. Now, Micah seems to hear yours and my discomfort in talking about these things. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, he says, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. It's almost like the people then, just as we would say today, we don't need to talk about this. It's really uncomfortable. I haven't done anything wrong, but listen to how Micah deals with us in verse 7. He says in verse 7, Should that be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? God cares about these things. God takes notice about these things. And if we belong to him, we must take notice of these things as well. So last week I discussed the idolatry that can come at a corporate level. And certainly there is no bigger golden calf than the American dream. When the American dream, uh, what living in a free country allows me to do, gets equated with God's dream for me. God put me here in this country, so he must want me to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness we can get ourselves into a bit of trouble. So look at verse 11. If a man should go about and utter wind and lie, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he'll be the preacher for this people. It's a very uncomfortable situation. And it would do me a lot of good to have something with a lot less heartache if I would have just followed my gut and preached the Psalms again. Because I can avoid the imprecatory Psalms. And I can avoid the Psalms of lament. And we don't have to talk about these things. But darn it all, I'm not here to make life easy on myself or you. I'm here to preach God's word, so let's get into it. I'm not called to shepherd you through comfort and ease. I'm here to declare God's truth. The truth is, friends, and I'm just going to say this, we're all guilty of oppression at some level. And the truth is that it should make us all feel the weight of conviction. But so what? And that's where I want to finish with the so what, okay? What is God going to do about all this? I want you to, again, to imagine for a moment that you are the oppressed one. And this is hard, I know, because none of us um, should read the Bible that way, at least not initially. See, here's the thing. None of us are oppressed Israelites, None of us are the poor and the marginalized that the Bible's original audience would have been. We are the comfortable Babylonians. 
We are the Romans on their villas. We are the ones who are functionally in the positions of the one for whom the Bible was speaking against, acting as the ones as the Bible who is speaking for. Hear what I said? We're the ones in the position of who the Bible is speaking against. Now, weird stuff starts to happen when you start to take on, um, when you're not the one, uh, I'd like to buy a vow and start over. This is where prosperity theology can come in, right? When you think that the Bible is speaking to you with your slicked back hair and your private jets saying that God is going to bring you riches, that's where stuff gets wacky, okay? That's where, that's where evil comes in in the equation. In the realm of ethics, in the realm of economics, there are the ones who have much and the ones who have little. And I recognize that from the perspective of redemption, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But beloved, listen, the reason that the prosperity gospel is so abhorrent is that the wealthy people with the slick back hair and the private jets take on God's promises as if they're speaking to them. And all of us are relatively wealthy, at least when compared to the rest of the world, right? We're all the 1% when compared to the rest of the world. So we have to work extra hard to read the Bible rightly. And so part of that comes uh, through how we view our wealth, right? Our wealth is a privilege and not a right, a gift and not a result of hard work, no matter how hard you've actually worked. That we are called to a deep humility, the humility that can only come through Christ that enables us to be hospitable and generous. So imagine that you are the oppressed one. Look at the ray of delight that would be coming to you from verses 3 and 4. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall, have, you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our, our fields. What he's, so Micah is speaking to the people of God just before the Babylonian captivity. So if you know the story, they all get exiled to Babylon. When they come back, everybody's fields get divided up. Everything that once belonged to you no longer belongs to you. God balanced the scales back out. And so your song would be this, finally someone hears, finally someone sees me, finally there's an advocate for me. But the world doesn't need just a right ethic. The world doesn't need just people to be seen as God sees them. The world needs an end to oppression because redemption is coming. In verses three through five, we see that God is going to redistribute the empire. He's going to rebalance the scales. So how does he do that? He gives the voiceless a voice. Look at verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. There is a shepherd on his way who will gather together all of the whiny, wandering, willful sheep. The shepherd will open the gates of oppression and lead his people to a new reality. When Jesus came, he called himself the good shepherd. He brought a new order. He came to make the first, the last first, 
the poor, blessed, the oppressed, free. How did Jesus do this? By redistributing wealth? By saying free college for all? By taxing the rich and giving it to the poor? No. How did Jesus do this? Jesus did this by himself taking the last spot and the lowest place. He gave us his riches by being made poor himself. He gave us his power by himself becoming oppressed. When he did these things, the powerful beat him and mocked him and scourged him and crucified him. And as we talked about in Philippians, he let it all happen. He was never overpowered. He allowed it at all times and at every stage and at every turn. He destroyed oppression by becoming the oppressed one. He did this for me and he did this for you. And he's still doing it. He is instilling his spirit in his people who will have the wisdom and courage to not only ask the question, can I do these things, but should I do these things? People who give their lives for others, who will hear the people sing, who will hear their neighbors shout, who will do what they must to embody what Jesus has done for them. Here's the problem with a social gospel. Everyone's guilty and there's no salvation. The biblical gospel says we're guilty and we should deal with that, but not by self-atonement but by looking to Jesus' atonement. doesn't mean there aren't things that we have to work on. It means that our hope comes not by setting the world right, but by the one who's remaking the world. So what are we going to do? As a family, can we talk about what we are freed to give and what, uh, what otherwise, sorry, as a family, can we talk about what we are freed to give, what, what we would otherwise try and grasp, right? Can we talk about what it would look like to give up what we once strive to get? How would that look for you? How would it look for you and your family to talk about what a godly generosity is, what it means to see people? what it means to recognize that we all participate in some form of oppression. How do you respond in humility to a Jesus who humbled himself and gave everything for you? The song in Les Mis closes this way. It says, will you join in our crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me? Somewhere beyond the barricade, is there a world you long to see? So join in the fight that will give you the right to be free. See, we're not here to make the world a better place as if that was somehow within our power. What we can do is participate what God is doing in the world. We can participate with God. We can be a people who have studied ethics and know how to ask the questions of right and wrong, good and bad, not just could we, but should we. And we could look to Jesus who became oppressed for us so that we might find our freedom in him.